Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I want to start with a quiz today. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote about a book in the Bible, and then I want you to guess. I'm going to give you multiple choice, make it easy on you. I want you to guess uh, what book of the Bible it's about. Now, you should have been clued in if you were paying attention at all to what Gabe said, but you probably weren't because that happens sometimes in church, right? But if you were listening, this should be easy. Even if you've never been to church, even if you like know nothing about the Bible, it still should be easy given the hints that Gabe laid forward for you earlier, okay? So here, here's the quote. It's by Martin Luther, the famous reformer. Martin Luther said, It finds a man mad or leaves him mad. Okay, so you're going to hold up number one if you think it's Genesis, number two if you think it's John, number three if you think it's Romans, and number four if you think it's the book of Revelation. Ready? Hold them up. Gabe, you missed it. No, I'm just kidding. I, every, good job, everybody. Way to pay attention to the hands. Give yourselves a hand. Very impressive. Bible scholars, all of you officially give you a degree. Uh, John Calvin, if you know who John Calvin is, said about the book of Revelation, no one can understand it. And if you think that's hyperbole, uh, then you should know that John Calvin wrote a commentary or a book to explain every book of the Bible but the book of Revelation. So he, he was like, I could handle 65 of these books. And then he opens up Revelation. He's like, nah, not doing that. Like nobody can understand it. That's the quote. It's probably the day he wrote that quote. It's like, no one can understand it. Uh, one page and sent it off. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, a famous British author and playwright, also a very vocal and famous atheist, he said this about the book. It's a curious record of the visions of a drug addict. <laughs> that's like, that's a lot, right? And uh, here's the idea. I, I differ really strongly, as you could have guessed, from George Bernard Shaw. Instead, I think it's this inspired and incredible written work. I, I think it's a piece of scripture that has profound importance for our lives as we uh, grow in reverence and awe of, of God. And 
this is, the, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. I think it's a book that grows more relevant every day for American Christians. And so, as I say that, I think that it's important that we come to this book uh, recognizing that it isn't just some, you know, crazy, mad-making document, but it is an inspired book by God for us, for us to read and embrace and apply. Now, uh, you know, it's confounded the greatest Christian minds, but I'm going to do my best to preach it. So good luck with that to all of you, right? Uh, and before I do, it's important to, to just do this thing. I think it's, this is important, that we need to, like, look at how people understand this book. And there's, there's kind of four big groups of people that understand this book in different ways. And I'm just going to briefly touch on these, so try to stay with me. I can tell you're smart. You put up the number four earlier, so try to stay with me. And, and I'm going to move right through them, but I will, I will try to come back to these as we, as we kind of move through Revelation over the next uh, eight months or, or whatever it might, might be. So here's the four primary ways that people understand the book of Revelation. The historicists, they see the book as representing a timeline through Christian history. So the beginning of the book of Revelation starts, you know, around Jesus' time, and, and then it moves kind of as you go through the chapters to today. Preterists see the book as being primarily about events that took place in the first century, okay? Futurists, this is the one you probably know and think of, they see the book as being primarily about the time that takes place, the events that happen right before the return of Jesus. By the way, the preterist viewpoint is the most common historically in Christian circles, and the futurist viewpoint is by far the most commonly held view in modern America. And then there's this idealist view that says this isn't about any time period, this is about teaching us lessons, teaching us truths about God. It's only really about the moral lessons, the theological lessons that we are supposed to take from it. Now, again, I'll try to communicate this in various ways as we move through. In fact, as I start preaching today, I'll, 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 I'll kind of give you a couple of different viewpoints on, on one of the very confusing kind of ideas in, in this section um, but I, I bring this up because there are ways to view the book that are different. But in each of these groups, and this is, this is part of the reason I'm preaching on this book. In each of these views, everybody kind of understands the main point, the main theme, the main message of the book of Revelation. Almost everybody agrees on the main idea, and, and as my professor who taught me to love this book and to appreciate this book and, and to understand it a little bit, Dr. Kuykendall, here's how he describes it. The main purpose was to console, reassure, uplift, comfort, exhort, and encourage Christians in the face of persecution from outside and heresy from the inside. But it also challenges them to remain faithful even to the point of martyrdom if it comes to that. I want to say it in simpler language. The point of the book of Revelation is to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejection of truth, especially biblical godly truth. I'll say that one more time. The point of the book of Revelation is to encourage Christians who are facing outside pressure and internal rejections of truth. 
and it encourages them to remain faithful in all of it, even if it means they die for their faithfulness. Now, as you consider that, think about where we sit as Christians today. Uh, frankly, how different it is than two years and seven months ago when we were last in this building. We face more external pressure as Christians than we ever have in our country. Now, I'm not the guy, and I don't think we need to be, that's like finding persecution in every mean word and all of that, but the reality is we face more external pressure when it comes to trying to be faithful to Jesus than we ever have before, and we face more internal rejection of truth. There are entire denominations that are basically throwing out the Bible that has been the source of truth for Christians for millennia. And they're just saying, nah, we don't really care what that says. And, and they probably don't use that language, but they just say it's irrelevant at this point. And so I think that as we face this growing external pressure and these mounting internal challenges, that the book becomes more relevant than it ever has been before. This book is given by God and it exists primarily to encourage and compel us to continue to be faithful to God and continue to worship God even when it gets really, really hard to do so. But here's the sad thing about the book. For most modern, especially American Christians, the only way that this book is ever talked about is by trying to figure out how its contents, its narrative, fit with the things that are happening in our lives in the world around us. It goes something like this, and I grew up with it. And by the way, if you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, I'll come back to you in a minute. But like, it goes like this. I grew up watching this on TV with my great-grandma. It's just the way that the book of Revelation gets talked about. Russia did this, and look at Revelation's use of Ezekiel. It must be here. Or, uh, or we got this, Israel bought this piece of land, the nation bought this piece of land, and look what the book of Daniel says and the connection between Daniel and Revelation. And so look, this must be happening now. Or, or the beast in the book of Revelation is connected to the Antichrist in First and Second John. And so we must know that Biden is the Antichrist, or Trump is the Antichrist, or Putin is the Antichrist, or the Pope is the Antichrist, or Elon Musk is the Antichrist. I Googled that the other day, Elon Musk one, and that's a real theory out there. I think to the point where Elon Musk actually said in an interview once that he wasn't or something like that. So, uh, so Elon Musk, I don't think the Antichrist would tell us, but uh, he says he's not. Now again, some of you are like, what is he talking about? You're like, uh, is like Russia in the Bible? I didn't know that. Like, uh, like, I didn't even know that nation existed back then. And Elon Musk, like, what is this guy talking about? Again, uh, I'm going to re respond to like, if you have no idea what's going on, I'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to put out there that the sad reality about the book of Revelation is that for most Christians today, it becomes a book of interest and not a book of impact. And that's the reason that I feel so strongly about preaching through it this year because I think it was written to be a book that impacted our lives and didn't just get discussed by scholars or people on TV. The book was meant to help you live for God even when it is really hard not to kind of figure out what's going on and how world events fit with the narrative that's going on in the Bible. And so with this in mind, I have my first challenge of the day, my first challenge in three months, actually. Uh, and, and it's this. I encourage you 
this week or, you know, in the next couple of weeks to read the book of Revelation with the theme in mind. Read the book of Revelation, not trying to figure out what everything is, but with an eye towards how does this encourage me to remain faithful to God even when it is really hard. Now, to those of you who are like, what? Like Russia, Putin, Elon Musk, I signed up to be at a cult this morning. Like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I don't understand this. Uh, let me explain to you uh, what's going on here. If you've never read the book of Revelation, uh, then, then let me tell you that it is, it is crazy. I mean, that's the word I would use. It is deeply confusing. It is debated at every corner. That's the reason that we need four different viewpoints, because it's debated at every corner. You can't read two authors who have written about the book of Revelation. Very smart, smart, smart people. Some who have devoted their lives to looking at this book. And, and you'll just read one and then the other. And they'll tell you two opposite viewpoints about the very same thing. Uh, and there's a reason for this. And, and the reason for this is that this book is an apocalypse. Or it's a piece of apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is not unique to the book of Revelation or the Bible. It's a, a genre, if you will. It's a genre. But there are some things you need to know in order to help us weave our way through the book of Revelation and to understand why it's so complicated in the first place about apocalyptic literature. There are characteristics, five that I'm going to share with you, that are important if you're going to understand this book rightly. The first is that they are usually, apocalyptic books, are filled with visions. Visions. The second is that they are filled with symbols. Now, honestly, those two right there, just those first two, that's the reason that the book is so difficult to understand. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is basically one giant vision filled with a bunch of very difficult to understand symbols. That's what the book is. And so if you're wondering, like, wait, why would it take so many viewpoints and why is it, you know, why are, what's going on here? It's because it's a book that tells the story of a vision filled with symbols. Apocalyptic books and works are also dualistic, like good versus evil. And they are pessimistic, like this is bad. Uh, and they are deterministic, like it's about to go down, right, like now. And so as you read through this book, you have these symbols and this negativity and these visions. And it leaves you going, what is happening here? Now, I want to just really quickly say that while this is the only apocalyptic book in the Bible, it's not the only apocalyptic sections. There are other sections. And it's certainly not, as I said before, the only piece of apocalyptic literature out there. In fact, there are 24 uh, ancient Christian apocalypse books and only one that is biblical, but there are 23 others that are uh, known that are in existence today. And so there's this giant question. If you're still with me, you're still paying attention to anything I'm saying, there's this giant question. Why, if this is a divinely inspired book, would God have it be written in this way? Like, why didn't God just say exactly what he means? Like, like what is happening here? And I'm sure there's a, a bunch of ideas and opinions about this, but I'm going to tell you mine. It's not unique to me for sure, but I want to tell you what I believe about that question. The book was written by the Apostle John. If you don't know who John was, John was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus had 12 people who, who hung out with him the most, who ministered with him, who were his friends while he walked on the earth. And John was one of those 12 disciples. 
Now, John, when he writes this book, is the only one still alive for a very specific reason. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he had committed suicide, but the other 10 disciples, Jesus' closest friends and followers while he walked on the earth, the other 10 had been killed for proclaiming publicly that Jesus was the Son of God who had come to the world to die for people's sins and that he had come back to life to conquer sin and death for those who might believe in him. Ten of them killed. Killed in horrific ways, some of them. John had been spared from that martyrdom. He had been, history tells us, legend tells us, boiled, but he didn't die. And then, this we know from Scripture, sent to an island under Roman arrest called Patmos. It would be like being sent to Alcatraz, like he's just sent out there to be a prisoner. And so here is John who writes this divinely inspired book. And I want to pause there and say, man, if anybody needed to hear that he should keep being faithful and keep worshiping God when it was hard, it was John, right? Like your friends, your co-ministers, they're all dead for the faith and you are, feel called to minister to these churches and you can't get off of this island to do that. Like he needed to hear it as much as anybody. Keep serving me, keep worshiping me, even though it is hard. But to answer the question why an apocalypse, you need to know who the book is written now, I said earlier it's written for all of us, and I believe that. I think the entirety of the Bible is written for us, all people who try to follow God. But it's important when trying to understand a book of the Bible to understand who its primary first century audience was. And I think the answer to that question really solves the mystery. Why an apocalyptic book? John is writing this book to the twelve, ch seven churches in Asia Minor. And John is on this island and he needs to send this letter to these churches. The first few chapters of the book of Revelation talk specifically to these churches, talk about the struggles they're going through. These churches are facing incredible struggles. They had survived the persecution of Nero, the Roman emperor, and now they were facing what many scholars call the second persecution under Domitian. It's going to get really, really bad, and it's probably already started to be really bad, like Christians dying for their faith. And so here is John on this island, God's going to divinely inspire this letter that needs to get to these churches. But it is going to be seen by another important group, I think, in the story before it gets to those churches, and that is Roman soldiers who would determine basically what outgoing mail was able to go out and what wasn't able to go out. Much of this book, I believe, is centered on Roman rule and facing persecution. And if John and if God had inspired a book where he's like, hey, Rome's doing this, so do this, and all of that, I don't think the letter would have gotten to them. So my opinion on this apocalypse, why is it filled with symbols and visions and things that are hard to understand? Because God knew that for the churches that needed this book and for us today to get this letter in the first place, it couldn't be a direct epistle as other letters are in the Bible. And so we have this giant, difficult, crazy book that I think the first century readers would have understood much easier than us. They would have gone like, I understand this symbol. I know what he's talking about. John mentioned that to me once, but John hasn't mentioned anything to me. You know, like I don't know these signs and symbols. And so I think that is why it is written in this way. So with all that in mind, I would say first, when you read this book, when you go home and read it and you're confused by it, I would say, remember that the way this book is written 
the way it's written is divinely inspired by God for a very specific and important purpose. Now, I want to read to you Revelation 4, 1 through 8. Uh, I mentioned I'm going to start in chapter 4. I preached through the first three chapters several years ago, but there's a real switch in kind of what happens in the book of Revelation. There's this kind of very direct call to the churches in the first three chapters. And then in 4, there's this heavenly vision that kind of carries its way uh, through the rest of the book. And so this is kind of the meat of, of this apocalypse, and this is where I want to start today. And as I read it, it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird. But as I read it, like, I want you to remember the purpose. Faithful to God even when it's hard. Listen to this. Revelation 4, 1 through 8. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, in the center and around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. I told you, it's really wild, right? So did Martin Luther, John Calvin hundreds of years ago. Like, you're just filled with questions, right? You're like, okay, that is like crazy. And, and just to set it up for you, here is John, and, and then he's called up to a door in heaven, and then he's going to see what takes place. They tell him that, and then the Spirit comes upon him, and then it just gets crazy, like without any warning that it's about to get crazy. And I know it leads to all these questions, right? And I want to answer a few of them briefly because, again, my goal in this series is not to answer all your questions about the book of Revelation. It's about, it's, the goal in this series is to show you how it calls you to worship and faithfulness even when it is hard. But really quickly, let me answer some of these. Who are the elders? Well, most of the viewpoints see them as representing the church in its entirety, like all Christians, not just like a church, but like all Christians. Where does this come from? It comes from the idea that these elders may very well represent the 12 patriarchs of Israel, go way back in your Bibles, and the 12 apostles that I've already mentioned in my sermon. And so you put the two together, and it seems to be a representation of all people who have served God throughout history, and frankly, who will serve God far into eternity. Now, Futurists take a, a more specific approach to this, and they would say that it's raptured Christians, uh, still representing Christians. So we all kind of agree. I mean, that's a, we're doing pretty good here. I mean, we're not too far apart. Like, it represents Christians in some way. What are the living creatures? It's weird. They're weird. I can tell you that. I can tell you, I would have described them as weird if I was John. I'm not very, I was just talking about this morning. I'm not very good at describing things. Like if I saw a murder go down and they asked me, you know, what the person looked like, I'd say medium. You know, like I just, <laughs> like a human, um, I think. Uh, and, and so I would not have gotten any of this. I would have just said weird. Like that would have been my description. But what do they represent? Well, angels. That's 
the answer. And funny enough, almost everybody seems to agree upon this, which is wildly unique when it comes to the book of Revelation. Now, why would we think that they are angels? I mean, where does that come from? Why doesn't it just say angels? Well, that question compels me to tell you that that the book of Revelation is filled with Old Testament imagery. In fact, three to four hundred times the, the book of Revelation uses the Old Testament in one way or another. I would go as far as to say the better you understand the Old Testament, the more easily you'll understand the book of Revelation. And I think that's one of the hard things for us as modern people that aren't you know, first century Jews who would have really known the Old Testament is we come to the book of Revelation having read to the book of Leviticus if we're Christians a handful of times and never, you know, really looked in the Old Testament other than that, a lot of people. And so again, the more you know the Old Testament, the more easily you'll understand the book of Revelation. Uh, But here we see a reference to a handful, it seems like, of different Old Testament passages, but primarily Ezekiel 1. And in Ezekiel 1, we have these living creatures that appear to be angels, and they might be like a hierarchy in the angels, like these are the angelic leaders, but everybody's like, yeah, that seems to line up. These seem to be angels. Maybe they are, you know, the, the lead angels, but they're angels. What's up with all the symbols? Like rainbows and emeralds and jasper and ruby and a giant sea and white and crowns and lamps blazing and weird animal faces and eyes all over. Like, what's up with that? And I cannot... We don't have time or energy or anything to go through those symbols one by one. But let me simply say that this scene is meant to show you the weirdness of this scene and all of its symbols are meant to point to the majesty of the one who sits on the throne. We are meant to see, and you can hash out what these symbols mean and debate that and argue about that. You can go to another church and they'll teach you all the things that they know for sure these things point to, but this pastor doesn't. And so I'm just going to stand up here and say, uh, I have opinions about these things, but the symbols are meant to point to the majesty of the one who sits on the throne. And you notice the way that we can kind of see this is that the throne is like the first thing that's mentioned at the very beginning of this crazy vision. It's the throne. In the very first line of the description of this vision of heaven, we see a throne. In fact, 40 times in this book, the word throne is used. Why? Because it's important to God through the author John that you understand that God sits on the throne of thrones, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. No matter who sits on the earthly thrones, our presidents, our kings, our rulers, no matter who sits on those thrones, there is only one who ultimately rules and reigns over everything that is in existence, and that is our God, Yahweh. God sits on his heavenly throne. He has ultimate power. He is in control. The throne is the first sign of God's sovereignty in this book, and it's also the first sign of victory. And here's what we need to remember, what was so hard for me to remember in the last couple of years, is that no matter what goes on around us, our God is in control. And the craziness that surrounds that throne is meant to show you that our God is a majestic being beyond what we can imagine. He is greater and more awesome and more holy than all that we can imagine. And I would say here that it begs the question, if God is on his throne, do we 
treat him as though that is true? Like, is he the one we are trying to find our answers to? Is he the one that we are obedient to? Is he the one that we are worshiping? Is he the one that we bow before? Is he the one that we seek to please with our lives? And that's made more clear in this other thing that you probably missed when I was reading it because if you're reading it, it's like, you know, like train wreck. You look at the train wreck and you don't notice the guy on the left that's hanging out on his phone or whatever. I just made that up on the spot. But, but like you, you read all of this crazy language in the book and you might miss this, this idea that's so important. Where is the throne sitting? It's in the center of it all. It's in the center of it all. And the point that's so clear here is that God is at the center of it all and he should be at the center of your heart. The center makes him the most important thing, right? I heard this incredible story the other day and I've already told it like four times. If you're one of the people I've told it to, it's not even my story, but I think it's just so funny and so good. Uh, I was talking, or no, it was the uh, grade school, the principal at my daughter's school. Um, She said she was in Chicago in the mid-90s and uh, she's... Uh, something's going on, and it's like a celebration for the uh, Chicago Bulls. They just won, like, another championship. People are all excited, you know, and, and she sees in the distance uh, Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan, I can use this. Everybody knows Michael Jordan, right? Like, uh, I hope. Uh, if you don't, read something. Uh, Michael Jordan is, is at the center of this throng of people, like, just people everywhere, right? That's the point, but I'll finish the story because it's so good. Um, Like, that makes him the most important. But she's standing there, and she has a son who's about to graduate high school. And and so she sees Michael Jordan over there. She's a little lady. She's like, I'm never going to be able to get to him, right? Like, I would love to get an autograph for my son who's about to graduate from high school. He's going to play basketball on a scholarship. He would love it if I get an autograph. No way I'm getting there. So she, there's two tall guys next to her, and she turns to these bigger-looking gentlemen, and she says, hey, My son would like an autograph. I can't get over there. There's no way. Will you like try to weave your way through? And she said this, this one of the guys says, sure. And he starts walking. And she said, as he's walking, like people are just moving out of the way. And he's just walking and walking and walking. And like everybody, like literally just parting the sea, like nobody's doing anything. And he walks up to Michael Jordan, kind of whispers in his ear, puts his hand around his back. And Michael Jordan, Jordan turns to him, he pulls out a poster, signs the poster, they giggle a little bit, hands it back, and then this guy just comes sauntering back and is like, here you go, and, and, and she looks at him and is like, wow, that was really easy for you, it's like you knew him or something, and he goes, well, yeah, I'm Scottie Pippen, I play with him, <laughs> uh, and the other guy was Horace Grant, for those of you that are bigger Chicago Bulls fans, Crazy story, right? My point in telling it is not just because it's a great story, but because where was Michael Jordan in this scene? He's at the center of it all. And in the heavenly scene that we see in the book of Revelation chapter 4, who's in the center of it all? It's our God, our majestic, good, great, awesome God. That's who is in the center of the scene, and he should be in the center of our lives. And the story continues in verses 8 through 11. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for all For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their 
being, at the heart of this whole entire weirdness, is, it's, is the fact that it's a scene about worship. It's about worshiping the one who is at the center, sitting on his throne. He is worshiped by the creatures for who he is. I think this is really important. And he's worshiped by the elders for what he has done. Now, what are the attributes of God that, that compels this kind of worship, that calls people reading it who are struggling to keep worshiping? What are the attributes about God that compel worship here? And, and there's three. God's holiness. That, would make, that, would make, that which makes him uniquely better and greater than all of creation. That which sets God apart from everything else, his holiness. But also he is powerful. He is all-powerful, actually. He is sovereign and powerful, and so he's worshipped for that. And he is also eternal. God has been, he is, and he will be forevermore. He's an eternal being. But what has God done that compels worship in this chapter? He created, that's it. He created. And these people representing Christians, these elders, they fall down and worship before God simply because he's allowed for them and for us to exist. Like here's the reality. God didn't need to let you have life. He didn't need to give you life, but he did. And because he is the all-powerful, all-holy, almighty, eternal being, no matter whether he did anything else for you ever again, he should be worshiped by you. He should be worshipped by you because he gave you life. But there's also this question, how do they worship? I think it's so instructive for us. And the first thing is that they fall prostrate on their faces. Every, live, every time the living creatures give glory to God in the book of Revelation, uh, the 24 elders, they fall down on their faces. They prostrate themselves before God. Uh, this is a key component of worship. Prostration being down like this is really the posture of worship. And the, the original Greek word for worship, it really just means to fall down before somebody. It means this. Like we picture this and singing, and that's fine. That's good. I think that's great. But the first word that we have in the New Testament that means worship, it just means doing this before God. That's what it means. And I'll tell you that sometimes we should be physically here when we are worshiping, but every time that we come before God, we should be spiritually prostrated before him. And so these, these elders, they fall down. And then they lay their crowns before him. The crown is a sign of victory. It was given to athletes who won. It's also a, a sign of authority. Overall, I would just say that, that the crown, in all of its meanings, we know this, right? It's a symbol of honor. Like, this is honor. And what we see in this passage is so beautiful because these crowns are given by God. It's God's crown to begin with. And they take their crowns off, the things that give them honor, the symbols of their honor, and they lay those at the feet of God who sits on his throne in the center of it all. It's as if they're saying, my honor, anything that brings me honor, I give back to you and your honor. That's what's happening in this scene. We, a big part of worship, something we should be doing is simply bringing back to God honor with that which he has honored us with. Uh, you may have seen that Aaron Judge, uh, you won't be able to see this very well. We're working on getting TVs back in here, but um, 
Uh, but Aaron Judge hit his 62nd home run this week, and uh, uh, you see him pointing up, right? And uh, and I didn't know this until uh, kind of seeing this picture, and I thought about him doing this, and I thought, I wonder if that's connected to uh, a Christian faith or anything like that. And uh, and Aaron Judge, he, he was asked about this. Why do you always do this? And he says uh, about God, he put me in this position, blessed me with so many opportunities in my life. I just try to take a quick moment just to thank him. It's a blessing every time I step on that field and get the opportunity. You see what he's doing here? I mean, Aaron Judge is honored, like more honored than God in our society, right? I mean, 62 home runs is a huge deal. And all he's doing is he's three steps from home plate is simply saying, you've given me this honor and I'm going to give it back to you in a simple way right here. Uh, the, the reality is that we don't need to uh, hit home runs in order for that to be a part of our lives, right? I mean, it should be a central component of our lives. When something brings us honor, we should reflect that honor. We should hand that back honor back to our God. Like when a new baby is born and we're excited about it, we should turn our attention to God and say, what a gift. Thank you, God. Or uh, when we're able to pay our bills in a month, you know, like, hey, I'm able to live here and pay this bill. God, thank you for, for that right there. Or, or, or when we have a good day, you know, and we get to the end of the day and think, that was good. Things went well today. It was a fun day. Like turning that honor, giving that honor back to God. Or when someone recognizes something we've done well, just saying, God, like without you, I'm not even here. I don't even exist. But you've also equipped me and given me ability. So I thank you here. Take that honor back. If we are going to act as though we are in heaven, then we must take time to bow before God and return his honor to him. Now, as Christians, my goodness, there's another part of this, right? Because we believe, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus died for your sins and came back to life, and he has given you forgiveness, and he's given you a new life, and he's given you an eternal existence in heaven. Like, he's given you all those things. So even on your worst day, you have been gifted beyond what we could imagine. And so even on our worst days, even when we strike out, we can still return our honor to God. And then there's this one other thing about their worship. They vocally express God's worth. In Revelation 4.11, it said, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Part of worshiping God is simply expressing his worth to him. You are worthy of all the good that I could possibly give you, all that I could lay at your feet. You're worthy of it all. Like, God, you are worthy of my entire life because you are unchanging and you have brought me safely through all of the struggles and changes that I have ever gone through. I would just say that um, by way of application, and before I move on to my bigger application, that, that I have found great value. Uh, I think it's really important uh, that that we include this kind of worship in our devotions that we do in the morning. So often when we think of what we do when we spend time with God is, is we, we pray and we read the Bible a little bit. But I'm convinced that first century Christians, Paul, his friends uh, in the Bible, that a part of what they did just when they were you know, spending time focused on God is that they worshiped God. Uh, often through song, and that's the part that I found really valuable on just putting on whatever song and singing along with it, but, but just taking time not to say, God, I need this and need this and need this and need this, and I'm sorry I did that and sorry I did that, but saying, God, you are worthy of everything I can bring you. So with all this in mind, like what, what should we do? And here's, I think, the simple answer. We need to take time in our lives to consider what God has done, who God is, and where God sits, the throne, 
And as we do that, we need to spend time worshiping him because of those things. We should worship him by bowing down physically or spiritually. We should worship him by giving him back the honor that he has allowed us to partake in. And we should do that by expressing his worth. In a minute, we're going to give you time to do that. You have cards in front of you, and I'm just going to give you a brief opportunity to, to consider who God is, what God has done for you, and where God sits. That's an easy answer, by the way, the throne. Um, and I hope that's true for you, but as you write it, I, I just hope that you'll remember that. And, and I, just, I just say, like, do that. That's a thing to do. Go home, consider, like, you open your Bible tomorrow morning if you do that, or maybe you've got to wake up five minutes early and just think, Who is God? What has God done? And where does God sit? And then let that compel you to worship. And I just, you know, think, like, what if all of us took that seriously during the week? Like, what if all of us were thinking about who God is and what God does and what his rightful place is in our lives as as we went through our, you know, daily routines? What if all of us did that? And then on Sundays when we came here, I think that would look different. In fact, what I think it would look like is I think it would look like heaven. So I hope you'll commit to doing those things. Let me pray that you will. Lord Jesus, um, you are majestic, God. Yahweh, you are majestic. Emerald rainbows and crazy creatures around you and uh, sitting on a throne in a glassy sea and lightning and thunder, Lord. You are, you are holy. You are awesome. You are majestic, You are beyond what we can even comprehend, Lord. And yet, yet, despite that, you brought us into existence. And you went one step further and you died for our sins, God. And you take care of us daily and you want a relationship with us, Lord. It is incredible. And Lord, so often our worship is puny compared to these heavenly scenes. But I I pray, God, that we would be a a church and a people that grow, Lord, in, in our desire to prostrate ourselves before you as we return your honor and express your worth, Lord, because we'd be growing in our understanding and our passion about who you are, God, and what you have done for us. Lord, make us a church that worships like heaven because we recognize who you are, what you have done, and where you sit. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.